Hey, it's Reading Aloud. You're the listener. I'm the host. My name is Nate Corbury. Let's get into this. Thanks so much for downloading the show and tuning in. Uh, this is a really fun episode. We had a break last week. Before that, we celebrated the 4th of July with uh, some dramatic readings of the Declaration of Independence and the British response. That was so much fun to do. Uh, thanks again to Robert Baker and Crispin Wattell uh, for bringing their dramatic chops to the show. This week is a little different. It's no longer 4th of July, so we're moving on. Uh, we have an amazing interview with Tan Lines. That's in the middle of the show. We have a great reading that um, is from a Tom Parada book, which I love. Um, I went ahead and read that myself because it's a story I really love. Uh, but I think it turned out great. Um, and we're beginning this show with another uh, live reading by a member of the Wolf, Wolf Pop family. Uh, but before we get to that, some, um, some housekeeping to do here. There is a live book club, folks. It's coming up. It's very soon. It's next week, Tuesday, July 21st at 7.30. Reading Aloud is taking over Skylight Books on Vermont in Los Feliz, and we're going to tear it down. Free books for everyone. We're going to burn that place to the ground. Podcast over. Just kidding. Now play the music. Let's end the show. Oh, you hit me like a hurricane. No, don't play the music. We're not going to burn it to the ground, but we're going to sit in chairs, and we're going to talk about a book that we all read, which is kind of similar to Burning It to the Ground. The book is called H is for Hawk. It's written by Helen McDonald. And if you go to Skylight Books right now, you can buy it for 15% off. Just say you're part of the show. And then come back on Tuesday the 21st at 7.30, and we'll have a cool communal experience as readers. And the panel uh, for that show is going to be really fun. Um, we have... Aya Cash, who's been on the show before, Julian Smelinski, who's been in the book club before a couple times, and Paul Shear, who's also um, been ha has been part of the live show and has done book clubs. So they're all within the Reading Aloud family. So we're going to have a really fun night at Skylight, and I'm still working on getting an actual hawk to get there. It's difficult, but... Um, I'm making phone calls. So get the book and come down and be a part of the live book club. And if you can't make it, if you don't live in Southern California, email us your thoughts and we'll read them during the show. We, we, uh, this is always a part of the book club experience where we interact with, the, uh, with you, the listener. Re uh, what's the email address? Readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com. Send us in your thoughts there and we'll talk about them on the air in the bookstore while it burns. So we'll, we'll see you next week. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited. It's the first, we've done live reading shows, but we've never done a live book club. So I'm, I'm, I think it's gonna be really fun. Um, enough about that. Let's get, to the, let's get to the jokes, shall we? Baron Vaughn, he has a show on Wolf Pop with Leonard Malton. They talk about movies. I've known Baron for a long time. We were at a summer theater together, another one of these Williamstown connections that uh, permeate my life. He is a super funny actor, comedian. He is so talented. And I've known him for a long time, and I was, I was really glad that he was able to come down to the theater and read this piece. This, and this is one of my favorite pieces. It's from 2012, Mike Locker, L-A-C-H-E-R. You can follow him on Twitter at Mike Locker. It's called, In Which I Fix My Girlfriend's Grandparents' Wi-Fi and Am Hailed as a Conquering Hero. <laughs> Baron 
so delivers on this. It's a wonderful piece, and the combination of Mike's words and Baron's interpretation is just about perfect. So this is recorded last month live at the UCB Theater in Hollywood, California. Here's Baron. In which I fix my girlfriend's grandparents' Wi-Fi and am hailed as a conquering hero. Lo, in the twilight days of the second year of the second decade of the third millennium, did a great darkness descend over the wireless internet connectivity of the people of 276 Ferndale Street in the north central lands of Iowa. For many years, the gentlefolk of these lands basked in a wireless network overflowing with speed and ample internet flowing like a river into their compact presario. Many happy days that the people spend checking hot mail and reading usatoday.com. But then one gray morning did Internet Explorer 6 no longer load the Google. Refresh was clicked again and again. But still did Internet Explorer 6 not load the Google. Perhaps the Google was broken, the people thought. But then the Yahoo 2 did not load, nor did hot mail nor did usatoday.com. The land was thrown into panic. Internet Explorer 6 was minimized, then maximized. The compact Rosario was unplugged, then plugged back in. The old mouse was brought out and plugged in beside the new mouse. Still, the Google did not load. Some in the kingdom thought the cause of the darkness must be the Routair. Little was known of the Routair. Legend told it had been installed behind the recliner long ago by a shadowy organization known as Comcast. <laughs> Others in the kingdom believed it was brought by a distant cousin many feasts ago, concluding the trouble must lie deep within the microchips the people of 276 Ferndale Street did despair and resigned themselves to defeat. But with the dawn of the feast of Christmas did a beacon of hope manifest itself upon the inky horizon, Riding in upon a teal Ford Focus came a great warrior, a suitor of the gentle folks' granddaughter. Word had spread through the kingdom that this warrior worked with computers and perhaps even knew the true nature of the Routair. The people did beseech the warrior to aid them. They were a simple people, capable only of rewarding him with gratitude and larger than normal serving of jello salad. The warrior considered the possible battles before him, while others may have shirked the duties, forcing the good people of Ferndale Street to prostrate themselves before the tyrants of Comcast, Linksys, and the Geek Squad. The warrior could not chill his heart to these depths. He accepted the quest and strode bravely across the beige shag carpet of the living room. Deep, deep behind the recliner, did the warrior crawl over great mountains of National Geographic magazines and deep chasms of TV guides. At last he reached a gnarled thicket of cords, a terrifying knot of gray and white and black and blue, threatening to ensnare all who ventured further. The warrior charged ahead. Weaker men would have lost their minds in the madness. Telephone cords plugged into ethernet jacks AC adapters plugged into phone jacks. A lone VGA cable wrapped 
in a fur knot around the ethernet cord. But the warrior bested the thicket, ripping away the vestigial cords and swiftly untangling the deadly trap. And at last, the warrior arrived at the Rauter. It was a dusty black box with an array of shimmering green lights blinking on and off, as if to taunt him to come any further. The warrior swiftly maneuvered to the rear of the Rauter and verified what he had feared, what he had heard whispered in his ear from spirits beyond. All the cords were securely in place. The warrior closed his eyes, summoning the power of his ancestors, long departed but watchful still. And then, with the echoing beep of his digital watch, he moved with deadly speed, wrapping his battle-hardened hands around the power cord at the back of the Rauter. Gripping it tightly, he pulled with all his force, dislodging the cord from the Rauter. The heavens roared, the earth wailed. The green lights turned off. Silently, the warrior counted. One, two, three. And just as swiftly, the warrior plugged the cord back into the Rauter. Great crashes of blood-red lightning boomed overhead. Murders of crows blackened the skies. The power light came on, solid green. The seas rolled. The WLAN light blinked on. The forest ignited. A dark fog rolled upon the land, and suddenly, all was silent. The warrior stared at the internet light, waiting, waiting. And then, as the world around him seemed all but dead, the internet light began to blink. The warrior darted out back over the mountains of National Geographic magazines and made haste to the compact presario. He woke up Windows XP from sleep mode and deftly defeated 12 notifications to update Norton Antivirus. <laughs> With a resounding click, he opened Internet Explorer 6 and gazed deep into its depths, past the, past the Yahoo toolbar, the MSN toolbar, the Ask.com toolbar, <laughs> and the AOL toolbar. And then did he see, at long last, that the Google did load. And so the good people of the kingdom were delighted and did heap laurels and jello salad at the warrior's feet. For now again, they could have their hot mail as the wireless internet did flow freely to the compact presario. The warrior ate his jello salad, thanked the gentlefolk, and then went to the basement because the TiVo was doing something weird with the VCR. Thank you very much. As we all know, learning doesn't stop after we leave school. And that's the reason I'm such a fan of the great courses. They have engaging video and audio lectures, and they're taught by top professors. I just watched their course, The Art of Reading, which is taught by award-winning professor Timothy Spurgeon. And he really goes into great detail about how narratives are crafted and characters' descriptions. He talks about what makes literature fascinating, basically. It's really fun. It's an amazing course, and it's just one of the hundreds of courses that the great courses offer. I really enjoy this one, and I want you to check it out. They're celebrating their 25th anniversary, and they have over 500 courses on so many topics, literature, history, science, photography, 
music, art. You can watch them, which is what I did, or listen to them. You can get DVDs, CDs. It can stream to your computer, digital downloads, or you can get the Great Courses app. So there's so many chances to get all this wonderful knowledge. And for a limited time, The Great Courses has a very special offer for my listeners. If you order from eight of their best-selling courses, including The Art of Reading, and as a Reading Aloud fan, I think this course is up your alley, you can get these courses at 80% off the original price. That's amazing. But it's only available for a very limited time. So here's the most important part. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash Nate. That's thegreatcourses.com slash Nate. Hello? Jesse Cohen. Yes. Hey, yes. man. It's Nate Cordry. <laughs> Hi, I'm I'm hearing you twice. Do you hearing me once or twice? I'm How about now. What about right this minute? How many? Have... Much better. Once. Okay. Perfect number. Do you want to hear me three times? I um I'll wait until I uh, listen to this twice after it's on the internet. That makes sense. <laughs> Are you in a in a like a dressing room in in Seattle right now? I'm in a hotel room in Seattle right now. Which Even I will be getting dressed in. Oh, cool. Yeah. How many uh, shirts do you take on tour? That's a great question. Um, I, I, this, I've been wearing like nice pocket t-shirts a lot recently, and I brought about 10 of them that are identical in different colors and two button-down shirts. Maybe uh, Wolf Pop, we can send you some Wolf Pop t-shirts. Please. They breathe. Please do. They're breathable. That's uh, great. That's perfect for this uh, weather. <laughs> How far are you guys into your tour? How many weeks in are you? Um, we left on the 26th and started in Pittsburgh. And I don't... What day is it today? I really... Didn't, I could not tell you. Is it J- July 9th? Today is... Oh, uh, that's a great... That's a fantastic question. Yeah. I think it's the, it's the 8th. I think we're, reco- we're recording this on the 8th, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so like a week and a half, I guess, we've been out here. Um, we made it all the way to Vancouver and Seattle, and so, you know, it's like a third of the way in, I'd say. Do you want to murder your partner? Um, well, you know, the good thing about this tour is that we we added two band members. Um, so Whoa. we have a drummer and a guitar player and a little crew. And in the past, when it was just the two of us, I, I would have wanted to murder him by now. But now there's a lot of different energy, like absorbing our own. That's great. Yeah, they're like emotional sponges that sit in the back of the <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, the brief conversations I've had with professional musicians, they say, like, at three weeks... That's when shit gets bad. It's true. Actually, we used to have a hard cap um, on three weeks. Are we recording right now? Yeah, yeah. Why not? Okay. We used to have a hard cap on three weeks. That, and like the, the way to tour in your 30s is to like do three weeks and then fly home on separate flights um, yeah. at the end of it. Yeah. Like, um, and that's what we used to do. But for this tour, we extended it to four weeks because we have these two other guys with us and it, it made less sense so we broke our own rule and we'll find out in like two weeks if that was a horrible idea <laughs> can, I, can i call you back like towards the end of july and just check in on your emotional state um i would be very happy if you did okay yeah just safety first i'm thinking 
my guest today is Jesse Cohen. He is half of the electronic indie pop duo Tan Lines. They have a brand new album. I say brand new. It came out in May. Yes? Yep. May? Yep. Uh, and I've been really enjoying it over the past several days in preparation for this interview. It's called Highlights. And they are out on the road right now playing the hits for all of you. Thank you, man, for uh, for hooking up your Skype application and, and chatting with me about about music. Thank you for asking me, too. I appreciate it. Is there um, a gig that you guys think about as being like one of your, your best gigs that you kind of aspire to create every night? Or do you not think about previous gigs? Do you go into every gig thinking... The crowd's going to give us what they give us, and we'll surf that, and um, every show is different. Um, a little of both. I mean, one of the things that uh, you learn from playing a lot and touring is that even though there's a rhythm to every single day, like you, you drive, you sound check, you play, you sleep, or whatever, um, you can't really predict which part of that is going to be the crappy part and which part's going to be the good part. So... That's kind of the maddening aspect of it. So, you know, sometimes you think you're going to a city and you sold all ton of tickets and it's going to be a great show and, like, the show sucks. <laughs> yeah. Other times you're going to, say, play Cleveland at the Grog Shop on a Sunday night and it turns out to be the best show of the whole tour. And so I tried not to really expect anything back from the audience. I've tried to, like, be a self-contained unit where, like, I'm the, in charge of making myself yeah. happy and feel good. Yeah, yeah. And that tends to work out the best. Everything else is, like, a bonus. How did you guys find the new, the uh, your two additional touring members? Uh, were they friends or did you have, like, you know, an audition? How does that work? Um, the guitar player, um, his name's Travis. He is a friend. He used to play for a band that opened for us once. And so we asked him on a text message and he replied by yes, anything, anytime, anywhere. And that was that. Fuck yeah. And then the drummer, um, we, yeah, we auditioned people. Um, we had like, um, junket style auditions where like five guys came in and played two songs with us and, they were all friends of friends, so it wasn't like um, it wasn't too professional. Yeah, but um, we kind of went with the guy who we had the most friends in common with, and who played the songs pretty well. So it's working out great. You didn't. Um, I, I. You guys live in. You're based out of Brooklyn, right? Correct. And what what neighborhood? Um, I live in Clinton Hill, and Eric lives in Williamsburg. Okay, there was a shot on. Uh, on your most recent video, which I believe is for Palace. Yeah. Um, there's a shot in that video, which is a fucking fantastic video, by the way. Kudos. Well done. Thank you very much. Well produced. Um, there's a shot that looks at my old apartment down oh. Ainsley Street, I believe, in Williamsburg. And yeah. I was, and I was like looking wow. at it, and I was like, holy shit, that's my old house. <laughs> yeah, I think that there were a lot of people who saw, with all due respect to you, I think that yeah. a lot of the comments were like, oh my God, this is like everywhere I go in Brooklyn. It's the most Brooklyn Williamsburg video ever. And that was intentional. And I'm happy <laughs> that you could identify with it yeah, that way. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Let's take a short break from talking and let's listen to some music. This is the first track from your new album. The album is called Highlights, and this tune is called Pieces. G'dish.
Um, I want to talk about books a little bit. Um, yes. Because it's a, it's a podcast about books and, and reading. Is there a bookstore that you, like your sort of go-to bookstore in your neighborhood or even just in New York that you enjoy going to more than others? Um. I, I don't know where people on your show fall on this, but I'm a recent, like, Kindle convert. Oh, cool. Okay. So I, as much as I want to shout out my I, – I, I mean, I know that it's, it's very similar to actually, like, music and Spotify and record stores. Like, you know, people are like, uh, yeah, I don't buy records anymore. I'm sorry. And I'm like, it's okay. It's part of how people listen to music now. Yes. And so – I feel like that makes me feel like I cannot feel, I shouldn't feel as bad about being a Kindle person. Does that make sense? Absolutely. No, I, I don't yeah. think so at all. It's, it's 2015. Yeah. And also, yeah, but, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, the way, the, the way that you live, which is sort of, a, I'm, I'm assuming part of the year is very nomadic existence. It's hard to pack 10 books into your bag because I'm assuming room is, you know, sparse on the bus. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's definitely part of it. Um, actually, the reason I I, I switched was um, kind of a little sad. My father-in-law uh, passed away uh, a couple years ago, and he was a art critic and literary critic, and had a huge collection of books that my wife and I um, inherited. And as soon as that happened, I looked around at all these new books I had, and I was like, I can't buy another book for the rest of my life. Oh my gosh. Add to this amount of books. Right. And so that's when I got the Kindle. I was like, this is what I'm going to be reading my books. Also the books that I read aren't generally like beautiful object books. They're more just like stuff. I don't want to have to move from apartment to apartment for the rest of my life. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. What, what is, uh, what is on the, uh, on the Kindle these days that you're, that you're into? Um, well, I've also been reading so much more since I got it, which has been oh, really that's, amazing. That's great. Um, yeah, so much more. Um, the There's a lot on here. The last thing that I read actually is a book that's coming out in a few weeks. It's called The Next Next Level. It's by Leon Nafak. And um, he's like a writer. He writes for Slate. And this is a book about a, mu- a musician named Juice Box. And um, I actually read the book because Leon, I had Leon on my, I have a podcast too. Yeah, I want to I want to talk to you about that for sure. And so I read that book and had him on the podcast and also the musician he's ta- he writes about. Um, but as far as literature, which is mostly what I read, the last thing I really, really loved was this book, The Poser by Jacob Rubin. You know that book? Yeah, I haven't read it, but I've, I've walked past it several times at my local bookstore, but I haven't been motivated to pick it up. I, I should. Yeah, I, I, I really, really loved it. Um, I also read, I, the last thing I bought, I haven't started, actually, our, um, we got robbed in St. Louis on this tour. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. We're driving around in a Sprinter, which is like a minibus kind yeah. of thing. On a good day, it's a minibus. On a bad day, it's a large van. <laughs> which how I think of it. Which one got robbed? <laughs> I would say the large van. Yeah, yeah. Because I don't think buses ever get robbed. Sure, no. Um, so they, we were in St. Louis, and we just went to eat pizza in the middle of the day, and we came Ugh. out, and we just... No, it looked totally fine. There was no glass. We got in, and we were just like, all of our bags are gone. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, f- how the fuck do you recover? Did you have a, a gig yeah. that night? 
Do we? Yeah, we did. Um, they didn't. Okay, they didn't touch most of our gear. Like they only, which was in the back. Right. So they only got into like the cabin of it, and they took everything out of that. And so it was like, oh my god, six laptops, all of our cash, all of our passports. Oh, like, fuck. I'm getting yeah. so mad right now. Yeah. And I ended up doing a segment on the local news about it because St. Louis, apparently, this happens, like, all the time there now. Um, but one of the things they took was my Kindle. So, oh, God um, damn it. That's gone. But interestingly, I had not even opened it once since I left New York. So I was learning, actually, about it. I expected to be reading a lot on it, and I hadn't even used it once right. since I left. God damn um, it. But... uh so the last thing I bought was the new Edgar Carrot book. It's a memoir. Do you know him? No. Tell me who that is. Um, he's one of my favorite authors. He's a Israeli short fiction writer. Very short fiction. Like he'll his collections will have like forty stories, and some of them will be two pages, and some of them will be twenty pages. And oh, okay. He. I think I discovered him. He was a little bit in the This American Life crowd. Okay. And um, his favorite, my favorite collection of his is called The Nimrod Flipout. I, I highly recommend it. It's sort of like surreal and funny, but very um, heartfelt and emotional writing that's apolitical and in that sense is in and of itself also political in Israel. So... I, I really, really like him. And so his new book just came out. It's a memoir called The Seven Good Years. And I haven't, I hadn't gotten a chance to start it yet. Is he, um, how old of a guy is he? I think he's in his mid-40s, maybe upper mid-40s. Is he an American or did he, he grew up in Israel? Is that where yeah, he's from? And, and he writes in Hebrew, but it's translated, obviously. Oh, wow. Can, yeah. you, can you speak Hebrew? Can you read Hebrew? Um, I can't. I couldn't read him in Hebrew. Um, it's not good enough for that, but I grew up, I went to a Jewish day school, and I, actually I was also, I was a Yiddish archivist for about 10 years before leaving to do music full-time, so I got to use some Hebrew there as well. I wanted to ask you about that. The, the Institute for Jewish Research, is this the same place? Yes, the YIVO, Y-I-V-O, the YIVO Institute for Jewish Research. YIVO is a Yiddish acronym. Oh, okay. What does it stand for? What does it mean? It stands for the Yiddisher Wiesenschaftlicher Institute, which means the Jewish Scientific Institute or Yiddish Scientific Institute, um, which is one of those old sort of things. It was founded in the 20s in Poland. So Wow. Yeah. Did you, uh, how did you get involved with the, with the Institute and doing research and stuff, being an archivist? Um, I started working there like a week after graduating college when I was, uh, 22. I, I, one of the, I studied history at the university of Wisconsin and I took a lot of Jewish history and I got a job there straight out of college as a researcher. And then after about two years of doing that, I moved, I became the photo archivist there. And I did that for about eight years. Are you from Wisconsin, uh, Wisconsin originally? Uh, no, I'm from the suburbs of Washington D.C. Oh, okay, and did you want did you want to study that when you got there, or did was that something you sort of discovered throughout your collegiate career? 
Um, no, I'd say I took the like long route back to my own history. Like yeah. I did a lot of Caribbean history and a lot of like post-colonial African-American studies kind of stuff. And then sort of ended up doing that alongside a lot of Jewish history. Um, I think at the time, like I was like, wanted something that I felt entitled to write like scathing things about without it being weird or mm-hmm. something like I, I wanted like a history that I, I felt free that I could sort of just say whatever I want to about and it not be an issue and so that was obviously the one are you still drawn to to like reading ton- are you do you want to read more nonfiction because your, your brain still sort of needs that uh, to soak in history is that something that you're still drawn to um that's a I definitely feel like since I became a full-time musician that there's a huge part of my brain that I'm not utilizing right um and I miss it but at the same time I'm like I was there for so long and it was such a kind of crazy and dysfunctional place that like when I left I was like it's been like a three-year-long sort of just like not get not touching that um, part of the world at least. So I've mostly just been doing fiction and I, I keep my brain fresh by taking a lot of online quizzes. <laughs> I, I, it's true. <laughs> what, which, uh, which quiz websites, uh, are you, do you support? Um, I'm a big Sporkle fan. Do you know what that is? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had yeah, a little. Yeah. I, I really, <laughs> I, I honestly believe that like if I had nothing else to do, no one who depended on me and yeah. no other obligations, I could just sort of sit on that website for like 10 hours yep. at, without doing anything else. It's great fun. I, yeah. I completely agree. Cool. You, you can casually lose an afternoon there for sure. And not feel, I also kind of don't feel bad about spending time there. Yes, yeah, because at the, at the end you're like, well, now I know every five-letter country that starts with a vowel. Yeah, ex- ex- exactly. Like, I knew very little about Newfoundland, but now I know, like, three things about Newfoundland. Exactly. So that's cool. It's, so I'm growing. It's, yeah. I'm improving my life. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the marketing and the promotion behind your new album, which is just incredibly fun and clever. Um, the website has been completely redesigned to look just like Netflix, including movie suggestions and different invented categories like uh, Tropical Depression, which is my personal favorite. Um, Thank you. As well as movies and TV you might not have realized are about Jews. Um, <laughs> along with links to new songs um, that are made to look like TV shows. It's incredibly fun and clever. And I wondered who came up with this and how the fuck did you execute it? It seems incredibly time-consuming and intensive. Uh, yeah, the, those are two very different answers. Um, who came up with it? I, that was me, basically. Well that was done. My idea. It came straight out of my iPhone idea notepad. Um, nice. Yeah, I, like I was just, I was, I was, I found myself like on a menu screen for a half hour, um, you know, just trying to figure out something to watch. And the idea came to me like this would be a good place for my band's content to be because people would actually see it. Yes. It's a screen that you don't turn off after 10 seconds of skimming an article or whatever. Absolutely. And so I talked to a friend of ours, Teddy Blanks, who is a graphic designer and he worked on our album artwork and he worked, he actually directed that video that you were talking about along with Alex Karpovsky. 
And I get, I just mentioned this idea to him and he's like, that's really funny. And it would not be that hard to actually do. And so he mocked it up for us and he explained how it was actually a WordPress. It's in WordPress. Wow. Um, Holy shit. Yeah. And, um, then our label kind of just built it based on his design and Eric and I filled in all those categories, um, with things that are like related to us and who we are and tropical depression is a reference to, um, our sort of tropical melancholic sounding music. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's category like made in Pittsburgh, which is where Eric is from. And it's all very self aware and self referential while at the same time being extremely referential to Netflix. <laughs> and if, you know, if you're, if you're logged into this was a huge part of what I in, insisted would be part of this website is that like, if you're logged into Netflix and you click Frasier, it'll just start playing Frasier. <laughs> so great. It's really good. It's such a it's such a clever idea. It's really smart. It's it's promoting the band in a really. Um, I like that it's that it's self aware. It shows that you guys have a sense of humor, that you're smart and funny, and that you aren't uh, too precious with uh, the art that you're making. Um, and maybe that's precious of me to call it art, but it is art. But I feel like some bands w- um, they need to take themselves incredibly seriously and they don't want to have any fun and i think that um i don't know someone like i just get frustrated by that i start to walk away from bands who find themselves um uh important and when you can have fun with what you're doing and also make great music that's sort of the perfect combo and i think that's very hard to do and you're achieving it you know Thank you yeah. very much. It's very important to me also. Um, we also have, you know, Eric and I are like dual frontmen, and he's the kind of quiet, mystique, you know, mysterious artist one. And he's kind of happy just to let his lyrics be his thing. And so it's, it's sort of a balance. Um, because if it's too funny, then yeah. people won't take you as serious. Yeah, it's, it's um, a... It's a, so it's 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 a it is a balance. That's a fine line to find, but I, I just that takes time and practice. I'm assuming, but you're treading it like perfectly. Thank you. Um, tell me about your podcast. All I know is that it's called No Effects, and you've spoken to some amazing people like Abby Jacobson and Sush Fair Jones and X Hex. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me why you started the the podcast. Um, where to come um, from? Well, I listen to a lot of podcasts. Yeah, it's called No Effects, uh, spelled out like the grown-up way. No effects, <laughs> right. and uh, it's. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, I have for several years now, and for the first year or two that I listened to a lot of podcasts, I would think to myself or say to other people, "There should really be one a podcast like this, like Mark Marin or like." Um, just any of these long form sort of artist to artist interview conversations about music because there isn't one. And because most interviews with musicians, with all due respect to you and what we're doing right now, but most of them are not as good as this. Like most of them are, how'd you get your band name? What are your influences? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, what do you eat on the road? Whatever it is. And bands sort of just shut down and, I think that they're not, I think the reason they're not 
that interesting is not really the band's fault. I think there's also like a built-in kind of animosity between music writers and musicians. First, sure. yeah. Uh, Yep. And so after about a year or two of just thinking that to myself or um, saying it out loud, I said, I'm just going to start doing this and I'll either find out if it, I'm good at it or I'll find out if I'm not good at it or if people like it or if they don't. And I just sort of started doing it. And it's been growing steadily since then. Um, and I, I really, really enjoy doing it. And the guests who've been on the show, you know, the people you mentioned, um, there's a lot, there's many, I've been doing it for about a year and a half now. Um, most people who have been on the show have said to me when we started, they don't listen to any podcasts, which I was pretty surprised hmm. by. Yeah. Um, but when it was, once I explained to them that it's like a long conversation, um, you know, what I think is that musicians in general they don't really like doing press, but they would all love to be the subject of a feature or profile. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. You That's, know, so yeah. doing a long thing, and once I sort of build the trust with them, and I just sort of see what they want to talk about, everyone almost universally at the end says, oh, I loved this. This was great. I, I would do this again, or, you know, this was one of my favorite things to do. Yeah. And I think it just sort of doesn't speak as much to my ability at it i think i'm getting better but i think it speaks to like a real sort of um you know void in the sort of music um criticism or i wouldn't call myself a critic but this sort of area where musicians get written about and so i'm hoping to fill that and and in some way and so far it's only been fun basically doing it yeah um yeah, why? Is there something I should expect in the future? No, That's you're not. <laughs> you're, you're way ahead of me. I'm only on episode 25 or 26 yeah. now, so I'm still figuring it out. Um, but I, I love it because it's one place, because I'm, um, by trade, I'm an actor, and I haven't created a lot of my own content, so I'm beholden to other people mm -hmm. and producers and directors and studios and all that other stuff that determine um, whether you work or not. And you're constantly getting compromised because of all these things you have to check off your list. But here, I'm able to have complete con creative control, ask the questions I want to ask, have the people on the show that I want to talk to. And it's only, it's only been fun. And yeah. I love doing it because it's this wonderful creative outlet where I get to ask interesting people interesting questions, and it's really fun. And I, and I think you're exactly right. This, the, the idea that it can breathe, that it's this long idea that can kind of have peaks and valleys, and you get to have this long dialogue with someone who you're interested in. I, I've, I've only really loved it, but I'm, I'm way behind you, so hopefully I'll uh, yeah, eventually catch up. Yeah, you know, I, what you said is interesting. Something that's come up on the show, I think, a bunch of times, you know, talking about musicians and actors, like <clears throat> something I've thought and have said and have talked about with people is like, you know, again, with all due respect, but it's like when, when you're a musician, like at the end of this career, when your career's over, like you can always still play music by yourself. Mm -hmm. Like you can always have a piano in your house or whatever and like write music and sort of itch that, you know, scratch that itch. I don't know how actors do it because you can't do that alone. Like you have to be picked for something or you have to be in work with other people. Like 
I, it's like, sometimes I think to myself, it's like when I'm having a bad day, like at, at this job, I think, well, at least I'm not an actor, you know, because <laughs> that idea that like, I couldn't just do my thing, um, would be, I can't, I don't know. It seems very hard, but you found a way to do your thing outside of that. And I think that's great. When you're, you know, 24 or 25, it doesn't really matter. But as you get older and life becomes more complicated, uh, you have to fight a little bit harder to like, make sure you're taking care of that voice inside of you, that, um, that artist voice. So it, yeah, yeah, it gets, it gets complicated, but you know, if you're, you have to just work a little extra hard to find outlets uh, to find it. Yeah. Before we finish up, let's listen to one more tune, if that's cool. This is off the new record, and this track is called Invisible Ways. This is Tan Lines.
wish, um, unfortunately, we have to cut it short, which is such a drag. I would have loved to have chatted with you longer. Um, Jesse Cohen has been my guest today. Tan Lions is his band with his pal Eric. They're touring America right now. Run out to see them and pick up their new record. It's called Highlights, and it is delightful. Jesse, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. Thank you. I enjoyed this. Cool. Thank you, dude. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do it. I know you're uh, about to do a show, so, so thanks for chatting. No, no, that was great. Thanks. I hope that that was uh, good for you. No, that's exactly what I w- what I was looking for. And I'll, I'll play some of your music to like lead in and to and to exit out. But that was that was perfect. I, I, I appreciate it. Thanks again. Awesome, thanks man. again. Yeah, have a good show tonight. Thanks. All right, man. Later. Bye bye. Everybody, slather some cream cheese all over your DiGiorno pizza and get ready to get womped because everybody's favorite intern, Marissa Wampler, played by Jessica St. Clair, is throwing on the cans for her brand new school project podcast, Womp It Up. Her teacher, mentor, co-host, former sniper Charlotte Listler, played by the also brilliant Lennon Parham, will be there to DJ and divvy out the love advice, plus many, many special guest stars. This is a fantastic new podcast, Womp It Up. You have to check it out to get a front row seat to the madness of the Marina Del Rey lifestyle. It's on Mondays on Earwolf. Womp It Up! So... I guess we've done 26, 27 episodes of this show, and I've, I haven't gotten to this author yet, which is crazy because I think he might be my favorite writer. He's one of my favorites for sure. His name is Tom Parada. I'm sure you've heard of him. He's so great. He writes about suburbia in a way that's incredibly compelling to me, sort of like the darkness and, and the underbelly of like a simple sort of, sort of suburban life. He really digs into it, and he's... Man, is he compelling. I I think Election was the first time I heard of him. Election is an amazing book, and it was, of course, made into a brilliant movie. Um, But then he wrote Joe College, which is an amazing book about this guy who goes to Yale, but he's from a really tough town. So when he comes home for college, he's like the nerdy guy who goes to Yale. But when he goes to Yale, he's like this cool street tough, you know, from like a rough town. He doesn't know sort of where he fits. It's It's a great book. Um, Parada wrote Little Children, which was made into an amazing movie that Todd Field directed. The Abstinence Teacher, which is amazing. Um, he has some short story collections, uh, Bad Haircut, which is great. And also, of course, he wrote The Leftovers uh, three or four years ago, which was made into the HBO series. I think that's his first television gig, I think. Um, 
And this piece that you're about to hear is from his collection from 2013. It's called Nine Inches, and it's wonderful. Um, it's my favorite story in the collection, and I just, I don't know, I just, um, I'm really drawn to it. I think it's really simple and beautiful, and it's something that sort of everyone can, I don't know, everyone's, I think everyone has felt this. Anyway, um, and again, I didn't want to ask one of my friends to do it. I wanted to do it myself because I think it's so great. So this is Nine Inches from the short story collection, Nine Inches, written by Tom Parada. Ethan didn't want to go to the middle school dance, but the vice principal twisted his arm. He said it was like jury duty. The system only made sense if everybody stepped up and nobody got special treatment. Besides, he added, you might as well do it now, get it over with before the new baby comes and things get even crazier. Ethan saw the logic in this, but it didn't make him feel any less guilty about leaving the house on Friday evening, with the dishes unwashed and Fiona just getting started on her nightly meltdown. Apparently, her busy toddler day wasn't complete, unless she spent an hour or two shrieking her head off before bedtime. Donna smiled coldly at him from the couch, as if he'd volunteered to be a chaperone out of spite, just to make her life that much more difficult. Don't worry about us, she called out as he buttoned his coat. We'll be fine. She had to speak in a louder than normal voice to make herself heard over Fiona, who was standing in the middle of the living room in yellow Dr. Dentons, her fists bald and her face smeared with a familiar glaze of snot, tears, and unquenchable fury. No, Daddy, she bellowed. You stay home. I'm sorry, Ethan said, not quite sure if he was apologizing to his wife or his child. I tried to get out of it. Donna scoffed, as if this were a likely story. She was usually a more understanding person, but this pregnancy wasn't bringing out the best in her. Only five months along, she had already begun groaning like a martyr every time she hoisted herself out of a chair or bent down to tie her shoe. She was also sweating a lot and her face had taken on a permanent pink flush, as if she were embarrassed by her entire life. Ethan couldn't say he was looking forward to the next several months, or the next several years, for that matter. Love you guys, he said, inching toward the door. His spirits lifted as he got into his car. It was a crisp March night with a faraway whiff of spring sweetening the breeze, and he couldn't help noticing what a relief it was to be out of the house going somewhere, anywhere, in the dark on a weekend. He just wished his destination could have been a little more exciting. When Ethan first got hired at the Daniel Webster Middle School, teachers weren't expected to babysit the kids at social functions, but, but that was back in a more innocent time before the notorious Jamaican beach party of 2009, a high school dance that degenerated into a drunken brawl slash grope fest and scandalized the entire community. Six kids were arrested for fighting, three for misdemeanor sexual assault, and two for pot. Eight more were hospitalized for alcohol poisoning. Cell phone videos of some shockingly dirty dancing made their way onto the internet, causing severe embarrassment for several senior girls gone wild who had stripped down to bikinis during the festivities and become the focus of unwanted attention from a rowdy group of varsity lacrosse and hockey players. Dances were canceled for an entire year, then reinstated under a host of strict new rules, including one that required the presence of faculty chaperones who would presumably impose the kind of 
professional discipline that had been lacking in the past. Ethan thought the new rules made sense for high school, where the kids were old enough and resourceful enough to get into real trouble, but it felt like overkill to extend it to the middle school. One more burden added to a job that already didn't pay nearly enough. Though he knew better than to complain to anyone who wasn't a teacher, he was sick and tired of people reminding him that he got summers off and should therefore consider himself lucky. Yeah, he didn't have to teach in July and August, but so what? It wasn't like he got to while away eight weeks at the beach or lounge in a hammock by the lake. He didn't even get to sit home reading fat biographies of the Founding Fathers or take his kid to the playground. He was a 32-year-old man with a master's degree in history, and he still spent his summer vacations the same way he had when he was 16, standing behind the counter of his father's auto parts store, ringing up wiper blades and air filters to make a little extra cash. For the second time in less than 12 hours, he parked in the faculty lot and made the familiar trudge around the side of the building to the main entrance where a crowd of boisterous 7th and 8th graders had already begun to gather. There was no such thing as being fashionably late to a dance that went from 7 to 9.30. Ethan was popular with the kids. He was, he knew, widely considered to be one of the cool teachers, and a number of them shouted out his name as he passed. Mr. Weller! Hey, it's Mr. Weller! Oddly gratified by the recognition, he acknowledged its fans with a quick wave as he approached the double doors, onto one of which someone had taped a single sheet of red paper, its message printed in big black letters, This is how we party. The main hallway was deserted, faintly ominous despite, or maybe because of, the mylar balloons taped to classroom doorknobs and the festive hand-lettered signs posted on the wall to mark the big occasion. Dream big. The sky's the limit. Prepare to meet your future. Ethan was a little puzzled by these phrases. They seemed off-message for a dance, more like motivational slogans than manifestos of fun, but he wasn't all that surprised. The kids at Daniel Webster were products of their time and place, dogged little achievers who were already taking SAT prep courses and padding their resumes for college. Apparently, they were ambitious even when they danced. As far as he knew, the other chaperones on duty were Rudy Batista and Sam Spillman, so he wasn't sure what to make of it when he spied Charlotte Murray checking her reflection in the glass of a vending machine outside the cafeteria. She turned at the sound of his footsteps, looking unusually pleased to see him. Her expression changed as he got closer, her mouth stretching into a comical grimace of despair. Help! She cried, flinging her eyes around his neck as if he were a long-lost relative. I'm trapped at an eighth-grade dance. Charlotte was an art teacher, a bit of a bohemian, one of the more interesting women on the faculty. Ethan patted her cautiously on the upper arm, struck by how pretty her reddish-gold hair looked against the green of her sweater. There was a nice, clean smell coming off of her, a, a humid aura of shampoo and something faintly lemony. I'm filling in for Sam, she explained upon releasing him. His father's back in the hospital. Ethan nodded solemnly, trying to show the proper respect for his colleague's ailing parent. Secretly, though, he was delighted. Sam was a social black hole, the kind of guy who could buttonhole you in the teacher's lounge and kill your whole free period telling you about the problem he was having with his dishwasher. Trading him for Charlotte was a major upgrade. 
It's your lucky day, she said, as if reading his mind. No kidding. They smiled at each other, but Ethan couldn't help notice a slight awkwardness in the air. He and Charlotte had been good friends during his first year at Daniel Webster. He was single back then, always up for a movie or a drink, and she was separated from her husband. For a little while there, this was five years ago, ancient history, they seemed on the verge of maybe getting involved, but it didn't happen. She went back to Rob, he met Donna, and their lives headed off on separate tracks. These days, they only saw each other at school and limited their conversation to polite small talk. So, how are you? she asked. Okay, Ethan pronounced the word with more emphasis than it usually received. He was suddenly conscious of his thinning hair, the weight he'd put on since knee surgery had ended his pickup basketball career. He was three years younger than Charlotte, but you wouldn't have guessed it from looking at them. You know, not bad. How about you? Great, she replied, making a face that undercut the word. In the past year or so, she'd taken to wearing oval black-framed eyeglasses that made her look like a college professor in a Van Halen video. Nothing too exciting. How's your little girl? Adorable when she's not screaming. Charlotte took this as a joke. Ethan didn't bother to correct her. And you're having another. Yeah, figure we should do it now before we get used to sleeping through the night. <laughs> she said she was happy for him, but he could see it took some effort. Kids were a sore spot in her marriage. She wanted to start a family, but her husband, he was a struggling scrap metal sculptor, deeply devoted to his art, refused to even consider the possibility. This had been the cause of their separation, and nothing seemed to have changed since they had gotten back together. They were saved from this tricky subject by the arrival of Rudy Batista, barely recognizable in khakis, a brown turtleneck, and a checkered blazer, a far cry from the crinkly nylon sweatsuits he wore to gym every day. Look at you, Charlotte called out. Got a date? Rudy adjusted his lapels, his face shining with health and good humor. It's a special occasion. I believe it calls for a certain elegance. I wish you'd told me that an hour ago, Charlotte complained, but... Ethan thought she looked just fine in her simple skirt and sweater combo, the black tights and ankle-high boots adding a slight funky touch to the ensemble. He was the slacker of the group in his relaxed-fit jeans and suede pumas. At least his shirt had buttons. I brought you guys a present. Rudy reached into his pocket and produced two identical strips of soft yellow measuring tape, the kind favored by tailors. He handed one to each of his colleagues. Exactly nine inches long. Are you serious? Ethan said. The vice principal had briefed him on the nine-inch rule a couple days ago. It stipulated that students had to keep their bodies at least that far apart while dancing, but it didn't seem like the kind of thing that was meant to be taken literally. We're actually supposed to measure? Just during the slow songs, Rudy explained. The kids think it's funny. Charlotte shot a skeptical glance at Ethan, who shrugged and stuffed the measuring tape into his pocket. She pulled her own piece taut in front of her face and pondered it for a couple of seconds. If that's nine inches, she said, someone's got some explaining to do. Ethan spent the first half hour of the dance manning the table outside the cafeteria, taking tickets, checking IDs, and crossing names off a master list, while a uniformed cop hulked in the doorway behind him, scrutinizing the kids for signs of drug or alcohol abuse. 
Lieutenant Ritchie was an older guy, he had to be pushing 60, with a brushy white mustache and none of the mellowness you might have expected from a small-town cop coasting toward retirement. He introduced himself as a special departmental liaison to the school board, appointed to oversee security at dances and sporting events. He said the position had been created specifically for him. One of my nieces got caught up in that Jamaican mess, he said, shaking his head as if the trauma were still fresh. We let that thing get out of hand. Ethan had to turn away two kids at the door, but not because they'd been partying. Carly Channing had forgotten her ID, and Mike Gruber hadn't realized that the tickets had to be purchased in advance. Both of them begged for one-time indulgences that Ethan would have been happy to provide, but Lieutenant Ritchie made it clear that no exceptions would be permitted on his watch. He seemed to take it for granted that he was the final arbiter, and Ethan had no reason to assume otherwise. Carly left in tears, Mike in sullen bewilderment. It's a good lesson for him, the lieutenant observed. Follow the rules, you got nothing to worry about. Ethan nodded without enthusiasm, vaguely ashamed of himself for knuckling under so easily. Carly returned ten minutes later with her ID, but he was haunted for the rest of the night by the thought of poor Mike wandering the empty streets, exiled from the fun on account of a technicality. It was a relief to slip into the cafeteria where the lights were low and the music was loud. Assuming an affable, don't-mind-me expression, Ethan joined his colleagues at their observation post by the snack station. Every few songs, one of them would venture out on a leisurely reconnaissance mission, but mostly they just nibbled on chips and Skittles while commenting on the action unfolding around them. Look at that. Rudy directed their attention to Allie Farley, a leggy 7th grader teetering past them in high heels and an alarmingly short skirt. That can't be legal. Charlotte craned her neck for a better look. She was the chaperone in charge of dress code enforcement. It wasn't that short when she came in. She must have hiked it up. Allie was chasing after Ben Willis, a shaggy-haired, delicate-looking kid who was one of the alpha jocks of Daniel Webster. When she caught up, she spun him around and began lecturing him on what appeared to be a matter of extreme urgency, judging from the slightly deranged look on her face and the chopping gesture she kept making with her right hand. Similar conferences were taking place all over the cafeteria, agitated girls explaining to clueless boys the roles they'd been assigned in the evening's dramas. For his part, Ben just stared up at her, she had at least half a foot on him, and gave an occasional awestruck nod as if she were some supernatural being rather than a classmate he'd known since kindergarten. Ethan sympathized. Allie had gone a little crazy with the eyeliner and lipstick and was having trouble connecting the fearsome young woman on the dance floor with the giggly, fresh-faced girl he taught in fourth period social studies. She seemed to have undergone some profound irreversible transformation. I wish I could have worn something like that when I was her age, Charlotte said. I had scoliosis, and back then you had to wear this awful body brace. It looked like I was wearing a barrel. I didn't know that, Ethan said. I never told you? Charlotte seemed surprised. Back when they were pals, they stayed out late drinking and talking on numerous occasions and had covered a fair amount of personal history. Junior high was a nightmare. Must have been tough, Rudy said. Long time ago, Charlotte said with a shrug. Allie turned away from Ben and began signaling to Amanda DiCarlo, a petite, dark-haired girl who was standing nearby. Eyes widening with horror, Amanda clapped one hand over her mouth and shook her head. 
Allie beckoned again, this time more emphatically, but Amanda couldn't move. She was wearing a white lab coat with a stethoscope slung around her neck, an outfit that marked her as a member of the Social Activities Committee, the group that organized the dances. The SAC apparently insisted on picking a theme for each event. Tonight was Dress as Your Future, which at least explained the cryptic signs in the hallway, but no one seemed to know or care about the theme, except the committee members themselves. In addition to the cute physician, a basketball player, a ballerina, a CEO, and a female astronaut were circulating throughout the cafeteria, looking a bit sheepish as they interacted with their uncostumed peers. Overcome with impatience, Allie seized Amanda by the arm, forcibly tugged her over to Ben, then scampered off, leaving the newly constituted couple to fend for themselves. They barely had time to exchange blushes before Umbrella began to play, and Amanda's shyness suddenly vanished. It was like she became another person the instant she started dancing. Mature and self-assured, a pretty medical student just off work and out to have a good time. Ben hesitated a few seconds before joining her, his movements stiff and a bit clunky, eyes glued on his partner as dozens of classmates surged onto the floor, surrounding and absorbing them into a large organism, a drifting, inward-looking mass of adolescent bodies. Ethan wasn't sure why he found himself so riveted by the spectacle of his students dancing. Individually, most of the kids didn't look graceful or even particularly happy. They were far too anxious or self-conscious for that. Collectively, though, and this was the thing that intrigued him, they gave off an overwhelming impression of energy and joy. You could see it in their hips and shoulders, their flailing arms and goofy faces, the pleasure they took in the music and their bodies, the conviction that they occupied the absolute center of a benign universe. The certainty that there was no place else to be but right here, right now. He couldn't remember the last time he'd felt like that. He was so busy staring that it took him a while to notice Charlotte's arm brushing against his. She was swaying in place, her elbow knocking rhythmically against his forearm, lingering a second or two before floating away. When he turned a smile at her, she responded with a long, quizzical look. In the forgiving darkness of the cafeteria, she could have easily been mistaken for 25, a young woman full of potential, a stranger to disappointment. She leaned in closer, bringing her lips to his ear. You okay? she asked. You seem a little sad. The trouble started during a moment of deceptive calm, a, a lull he recognized too late as the eye of the hormonal hurricane. It was a little before nine o'clock, the home stretch, and Ethan was feeling loose and cheerful. If pressed, he might even have been willing to admit that he was enjoying himself. The kids had prevailed upon the teachers to join them for a few line dances, the electric slide, the cotton-eyed Joe, the Macarena, and he felt like he'd survived the ordeal not only with his dignity intact, but with his good guy reputation enhanced. Then he'd been invited to preside over the raffle, pulling names out of a Red Sox cap and bestowing gift certificates for pizza and frozen yogurt on winners who couldn't have been more excited if he'd been handing out iPods. He was making his way back to the snack station when a vaguely familiar slow song began to play. Charlotte later told him it was Chasing Cars by Snow Patrol. He felt something stirring 
among the kids. A sudden sense of urgency as they scan their room for prospective partners. At the same time, the DJ turned on his special effects machine, a revolving spear that shot off an array of multicolored lights, painting the cafeteria and everyone in it with a swirling psychedelic rainbow. There must have been something hypnotic about the combination of that song and those lights because Ethan stopped in the middle of the dance floor and let it wash over him. All around him, kids were forming couples, moving into each other's arms, and without fully realizing what he was doing, he found himself scanning the room, searching for Charlotte. It wasn't until he located her she was wandering among the dancers, checking for compliance with the nine-inch rule, that Ethan finally emerged from his trance, remembering that he had a job to do. For the first time since Rudy had given it to him, he reached into his pocket and withdrew his yellow tape. There'd been slow dances earlier in the evening, but the kids hadn't seemed too interested. Relatively few couples had ventured onto the floor, and the ones who did had been extremely well-behaved. This time, though, maybe because the night was winding down, Ethan sensed a different mood in the cafeteria. Most of the dancers still kept a safe distance, but a significant minority were inching closer, testing the limits of what was permissible, and a handful had gone into open rebellion, pressing together with moony looks on their faces and no daylight between them. When Ethan came upon one of these pairs, he tapped both partners on the shoulder and held up the measuring tape as a helpful reminder. He was pleased to discover that Rudy was right. The kids seemed to enjoy the intervention, or at least not mind it. Some smiled guiltily, while others pretended to have made an honest mistake. In any case, no one protested or resisted. The song must have been halfway over by the time he spotted Amanda and Ben. They had drifted away from the herd, creating a small zone of privacy for themselves on the edge of the dance floor. Even at first glance, something seemed strange about them. Almost forbidding. The other couples had at least made a show of slow dancing, but these two were motionless, clinging to each other in perfect, almost photographic stillness. Amanda was melting against Ben, arms wrapped tight around his waist, her face crushed into his chest. His eyes were closed, his lips slightly parted. He appeared to be concentrating deeply on the smell of her hair. Ethan knew what he was supposed to do, but the role of chaperone suddenly felt oppressive to him. They just looked so blissful. It seemed wrong even to be watching them, almost creepy, but for some reason he couldn't manage to avert his eyes, let alone move. He wasn't sure how long he'd been staring at them before Lieutenant Ritchie appeared at his side. Ethan nodded a greeting, but the lieutenant didn't reciprocate. After a moment, he jutted his chin at the young levers. You gonna do something about that? Probably not, Ethan replied. Song's almost over. The lieutenant squinted at him. Bands of red, yellow, and green light flickered across his face. That's a clear violation. You gotta break it up. Ethan shrugged, still hoping to run out the clock. They're not hurting anybody. Where are you, the lawyer? By this point, Rudy and Charlotte had arrived on the scene, the combined presence of all four adults creating an official air of crisis. 
Ethan could feel the attention of the whole dance shifting in their direction. What's going on? Rudy asked. He was all business, like a paramedic who'd happened upon an accident. Lieutenant Ritchie glared at Ben and Amanda, who remained glued together, oblivious to anything beyond themselves. Charlotte looked worried. The damn song just kept on going. Ethan knew when he was beat. It's okay, he assured his colleagues. I'm on it. Later, in the bar, Ethan tried to describe the look on Amanda's face right before he pried her away from Ben. The way he remembered it, her, her expression wasn't so much angry as uncomprehending. He'd had to call her name three times just to get her to look up. Her eyes were dull and vacant like she'd been jolted out of a deep sleep. I don't think she even knew where she was, Ethan said. She's a sweet kid, Charlotte pointed out. Tell that to the lieutenant. Ugh. Charlotte's mouth contracted with disgust. I'm surprised he didn't use his pepper spray. Lieutenant Ritchie had insisted on formally ejecting Ben and Amanda from the dance, a punishment that carried a mandatory two-day suspension and required immediate parental notification. Ben's dad had at least been polite on the phone. He'd apologized for his son's behavior and promised there would be consequences at home. But Amanda's mother treated the whole situation like a joke. It was a dance, she told Ethan, pronouncing the words slowly and clearly as if for the benefit of an imbecile. They were dancing at a dance. She made him explain the nine-inch rule in great detail, correctly sensing that he found it just as ridiculous as she did. I still remember the first time I danced like that, Ethan said. They were working on their second drink. Rudy had joined them for the first round, but left after receiving a phone call from his wife, and the bourbon was having a welcome effect on his jangled nerves. Must have been seventh grade with Jenny Wong. She was just a friend, a girl from down the block, but it was such an amazing feeling to have her pressed up against me like that with all those people around. One of the highlights of my life. You're lucky, Charlotte said, sounding like she meant it. When I was that age, I used to sit alone in my room and make out with my arm. Really? It wasn't so bad. She glanced tenderly at the crook of her elbow. I still do it sometimes. Nothing else is going on. Ethan smiled. It felt good, being here with Charlotte. McNulty's had always been their bar of choice. They'd sat more than once at this very table, and he couldn't quite shake the feeling that the past five years had never happened, that they were right back where they'd left off. He had to make an effort not to blurt out something inappropriate, like how much he missed talking to her. How wrong it was that such a simple pleasure had vanished from his life. By the way, he said, I really like your glasses. Thanks. Her smile was unconvincing. I prefer contacts, but my eyes get dry. He studied her irises. They were hazel with golden flecks, as if checking on their moisture level. Something wrong, she asked. Not really. This is just kind of weird, isn't it? Charlotte looked down at the table. When she looked up, her face seemed older, or maybe just sadder. I don't know if you heard, she said. Rob and I are getting divorced. No, I hadn't. I'm sorry, she shrugged. We've been thinking about it for a while. At least I have. Ethan hesitated. The air between them seemed suddenly dense, charged with significance.
To tell you the truth, he said, I never understood why you went back to him. Charlotte considered this for a moment. I almost didn't. I was all set to leave him for good. That night I slept on your couch. He didn't have to ask her to be more specific. She'd slept on his couch exactly once, and he remembered the occasion all too well. Her 30th birthday. They both agreed she was too drunk to drive home. I waited for you all night, she told him. You never came. A harsh sound issued from his throat, not quite a laugh. I wanted to, but we had that long talk, remember? You, you said you still loved Rob and couldn't imagine being with anyone else. I was stupid. Charlotte tried to smile, but she seemed to have forgotten which muscles were involved. I was so sure we were going to sleep together, I guess I overcompensated. Rob and I have been together since freshman year of college. I just wanted you to know what you're getting into. You've got to be kidding. A bad taste flooded into Ethan's mouth. Something sharp and bitter the whiskey couldn't wash away. I was dying for you. That was the longest night of my life. I thought you'd abandoned me. But you said I was confused, Ethan. I needed you to help me. You went back to him two days later. I know. She sounded just as baffled as Ethan did. I just couldn't bear to break his heart. So you broke mine instead. Charlotte shook her head for a long time as if taking inventory of everything that might have been different if he'd just come out of his bedroom. I'm the one who lost out, she reminded him. Everything worked out fine for you. Ethan didn't argue. This didn't seem like the time to tell her about the weeks he'd spent on his couch after she went back to her husband, the way his world seemed to shrink and darken in her absence. He didn't go on a date for almost a year. And even after he met Donna, after he convinced himself that he loved her, he never lost the sense that there was a little asterisk next to her name, a tiny reminder that she was his second choice, the best he could do under the circumstances. Charlotte wasn't making any noise, so it took him a few seconds to realize she was crying. When she took off her glasses, her face seemed naked and vulnerable and deeply familiar. I don't know about you, she said as she wiped her eyes, but I could use another drink. It was late when he pulled into his driveway, almost one in the morning, but he wasn't tired. He wasn't drunk either, not anymore, though he'd felt pretty buzzed after his third drink, pleasantly unsteady as he made his way down the long, dim hallway to the men's room. There were ice cubes in the urinal, an odd echo of his bourbon on the rocks, and an old-school rolling cloth tile dispenser, the kind that made a thump when you yank. He wasn't too surprised to find Charlotte waiting in the hallway when he stepped out of the bathroom. It was almost like he'd been expecting her. A peculiar expression was on her face, a mixture of boldness and embarrassment. I missed you, she said. Kissing her just then felt perfectly normal and completely self-explanatory, the only possible course of action. There was no hesitation, no self-consciousness, just one mouth finding another. He ran his fingers through her hair, slid his palm down the length of her back, then lower, tracing the gentle curve of her ass. She liked it. He could tell. He spread his fingers wide, cupping and squeezing the soft flesh. Voices made them pull apart, two young women on the way to the ladies' room. 
Excuse me, one of them said, turning sideways to slip by. <laughs> Don't mind us, chuckled the other. It was no big deal, just a brief, good-natured interruption, but for some reason, they never recovered from it. When they started kissing again, it felt forced and awkward, like they were trying too hard. Charlotte pulled away after only a few seconds. Oh, God. Ethan. Her glasses were askew, her face pink with shame. What are we doing? It's okay, he told her. We're just having a good time. She didn't seem to hear him. Her voice was barely audible. I better go. Come on, you don't have to do that. I do. She turned swiftly, heading for the exit. He followed her out to the parking lot, pleading with her to stay for one more drink, but nothing he said made any difference. She just kept muttering about his pregnant wife and child and how sorry she was, all the while fumbling in her purse for her car keys. You have to forgive me, she said in a pleading voice. I'm just going through a hard time. I'm, I'm, I'm really not the kind of person who... He grabbed her by the shoulders, forcing her to look at his face. I love you. The words just popped out of his mouth. But in that moment, they felt true, undeniable. Do you understand that? She shook her head. The only thing in her eyes was pity. You need to go home, Ethan. Just forget this ever happened. Please? Then she got in her car and drove off. Her face ashen, her eyes fixed straight ahead. He thought about chasing after her, but he knew it would be useless. There was nothing to do but go home, just like she told him. Now that he was here, though, he couldn't seem to get out of the car. Maybe in a minute or two, he'd unbuckle his seatbelt and head inside, into the house where his wife and child were sleeping. In the meantime, he was happy enough to stay right here and think about kissing Charlotte outside the men's room and the dreamy look on Amanda's face when he showed her the measuring tape and explained that she and Ben were dancing too close. The way she just smiled and closed her eyes and let her head fall back onto her partner's chest as if the two of them were the only people who mattered in the world. As if they had no one to answer to but themselves. Hi again. My name's Nate Cordry. I just read that story to you. I'm the host of the show, and now I'm saying goodbye. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to Mike Locker uh, and Baron Vaughn, of course, and thanks to Professor Cohen of Tan Lines. Uh, he was great. It was so much fun to chat, chat with him, and his music is awesome. They're still on tour for several weeks, so check it out. And I am definitely going to call him back and see if he wants to murder Eric. Because I feel like after a couple weeks when you're in a van with someone, you're going to want to murder them. We'll check in with them, and then we'll report back. Uh, and that great piece uh, in, in Act 3, Tom Parada, by his books. He's a good writer. I will see you this coming Tuesday, the 21st of July at Skylight Books. Bring your birds. We're going to talk about Ages for Hawk by Helen McDonald, which I'm really digging, by the way. But it's sad. Uh, and we'll be back next week with the recording of that very book club. 
Again, my name is Nate Cordry. You can follow us on Twitter at Reading Aloud Pod. You can follow me at I'm Nate Cordry. We'll see you next week with more Reading Aloud. Oh, you hit me like a hurricane! Hello, Internet. Paul F. Tompkins here. You may know me as a guest on all of your favorite shows and three shows you don't like all that much. But now I have a show of my own, Spontaneation, where I pick the guests. I finally have the power. First, I interview wonderful people like Colin Hanks, Caitlin Olson, and Michael Sheen. Then a cadre of elite improvisers and I will use that interview to spin a crazy improvised story. How crazy? This crazy Diane, when we met, I may have ended your life by vampiric means and made you a vampire. That would explain why I keep drinking people's blood. (laughs) And why your skin is so fresh and radiant. Yeah, and I tried to kill myself a bunch of times and it did not work. With music by the incomparable Eben Schletter and yours truly hosting, it's Spontaneation, only on Earwolf. Only for you, Damien. I'm doing this for you. Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear.